Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Hello, folks. Welcome to another edition of the Good Judgment Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And today we have a big podcast shout out to our friend, Judge Kevin Morris of the Walton Magistrate Court for suggesting a great topic for discussion today. But Tane, Kevin didn't just make a suggestion. I mean, he went so far above and beyond the call of duty. That is so right, Wade. Kevin crushed it. He wrote the outline for today's entire episode. Just in case you couldn't see us on the visual, that was our audience giving Kevin a standing ovation. I believe that was one of the longest ovations we've ever had on our podcast. Absolutely. Um, You know, he I I think he deserves a standing ovation for that. I mean, Y'all have no idea how much time, you know, yeah, we spend some time recording the episodes, but the work goes into the research. And although we have, um, oh, yeah, we don't have a staff. Oh, yeah, that's right. We don't have a budget. Well, we kind of have a budget. The, the, the Mm. state, the state, the state justice Institute has helped us a good bit, but yeah, we got a grant. But at the end of the day, when you, when you have an idea and an outline, whoo. We are forever appreciative. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. All right. So let's, Tane, let's dive in. And I've got a, I got a confession to make. This is not something that I have dealt with a great deal. I know that at least when you're a lawyer world, when you're in the AG's office, you dealt with this a lot. So yeah. I'm probably going to take maybe the backseat approach and let you drive a little bit. And I'll just ask questions. How about that? That's all right, Wade. I got you, man. Thank you. So uh, this topic can be really confusing. So uh, we're going to try to break it down for you in a way that I think will be helpful for you. So so this is this is the topic, governmental immunities. And um, so whenever you have litigation that's against a government uh, entity or a government official, um, the issue of sovereign immunity always arises. Um, It can be a very confusing area because there are different immunity rules depending on the nature of the claims asserted. There are also different immunity rules depending on whether the government is the named defendant as opposed to some government official or an employee. Uh, It also depends on whether the official or employee has been named in his or her official capacity or in their individual capacity. So anyway, we'll see if we can straight that out. And then finally, there are also some additional rules that are different depending on whether the defendant is a city as opposed to a county or the state, and also whether the suit is filed in federal court or state court. And we're not going to cover the federal rules a whole lot, but we are going to we are going to touch on that just so that you'll understand a little bit of the difference. So and folks, now we have an outline. We have an outline that we're going to make available available to you on goodjudgepod.com. If you ever find yourself in one of these cases and just kind of need a, 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 a way to find yourself um, a starting point on, on dealing with immunity, please go to goodjudgepod.com, download the, the episode notes. You could ignore the stupid stuff that we write to one another that we're going to say, but all the substantive stuff will be there. So, Tane, sovereign immunity, um, when I was in law school, I thought it was that you can't sue the king because the king's only money is tax money. And maybe I misunderstood. Help help us on what is sovereign immunity in the state law area. 
No, you're, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, sovereign immunity really evolved from the English common law, this whole idea that the king could, could not be wrong, you know, could, because, I mean, think about it. The king's power derived from, from the divine power given to them to be the king. So basically when God gives you powers, you, you really can't screw that up. Like anything you do is supposedly the right thing. Now we could quibble about that all day long, but that was the idea. Under throw the out English an example law. or two. Yeah, we could throw out a couple of examples, Henry VIII. Um, but, uh, but anyway, the idea came down from this common law idea that the state couldn't be sued unless it agrees to be sued. And that was the, that was the English common law rule, that the, the king, the sovereign, couldn't be sued unless it agreed to be sued. So, for example, you know, way on back in, in, in ancient times in England, Let's say something happened. You know, the king's soldiers accidentally burned down this widow's hut and destroyed everything she owned. The king could agree to pay compensation to that widow, even though is the king, he wasn't required to do anything. And so that's really where this idea of, you know, well, the, the, the state, the sovereign could agree to waive that immunity if it wanted to came from. And so that's kind of our starting point today. So. As I said, the, the, while this, this whole concept might seem a little bit outdated and silly, um, it does make a little bit of sense. After all, our system of government powers are derived from the consent of the people, just like the king got his powers from, you know, supposedly from God, um, and the government is the people. So suing the government is really just suing the people, or at least it's suing the taxpayers um, and the public, the public treasury. So, Tane, you have talked about what the role in which people are sued, in other words, the capacity in which they're sued. And I've noticed in, in court cases that that somebody will be sued in their individual capacity or their official capacity. You're saying that makes a difference here, right? Yeah, it definitely does. So so think about it this way. Um in some suit, in some cases, you'll see that the the party that's being sued is just the state of Georgia. But in some cases, you might see that it is the governor of the state of Georgia being sued as the governor. And then in other cases, you will see it as let's say the sheriff of a county being sued in his personal capacity. In other words, I'm not suing for something he did he did as a sheriff. I am suing for something that he did that's way outside and beyond his duties as a sheriff. All of that makes a difference. And we're going to kind of walk through that to, to tell you when and how it makes a difference. So when a government official is sued in his or her individual capacity, there is no sovereign immunity defense. Instead, so, so again, let me, let me break it down because I know it's a little confusing. If you just sue the State Department of Transportation, and that's an entity I represented for a while, so let's, let's use that as an example. You sue the State DOT, then you know, that's, clear, that's clear that sovereign immunity could apply there, and that's when you start analyzing it under sovereign immunity. But sometimes what, what, a, what someone will do is sue um, an individual, a, a, the, let's say the commissioner of the Department of Transportation, uh, Joe Smith, um, and they'll sue him for things that he has done as the commissioner of the Department of Transportation, a policy of not putting up guardrails in certain circumstances or something, something like that. Um, 
when that when that official or employee is sued in an in an individual capacity we're not applying this doctrine of sovereign immunity which is the state can do no wrong because think about it that is almost an absolute defense in those cases in other words if you're if you're asserting sovereign immunity that you cannot be sued at all that's more of a, a jurisdictional question in fact the cases have said it is basically a subject matter jurisdiction question when you are dealing with that but instead when an individual is sued you're dealing with what is called official immunity um, when a state law claim is asserted and then it's also called qualified immunity when a federal claim is asserted and we'll tell you a little bit about the difference of that in a few minutes so basically the individual is stepping it's still having something to do with your job so for example if if a if the commissioner joe smith from your example breached a contract concerning the delivery of uh of drywall to his home. Yeah. That had that doesn't have anything to do with this, correct? That, that's exactly right. And so in that case he may have he may have some defenses available to them, uh, but the defense is not going to be official immunity because that's something he was doing in his official capacity as a state actor. So so let me let me go back and break it down this way. And I think because I think understanding sovereign immunity and where it applies is a good starting point and then I'll try to break down the official immunity for you. So so sovereign immunity, again, bars a lawsuit based upon, let's say, a state law tort claim, for example, unless there is a state statute or some sort of constitutional provision that expressly waives that immunity. And we'll talk to you about some specific cases in a minute. But you've got to have a waiver. Otherwise, again, the state can't be sued. It can't be sued without its consent. So there has to be a waiver. Now, in Georgia, the state has actually waived tort suits for tort claims, uh, or I'm sorry, has waived its immunity in suits for tort claims under what we're calling the, um, uh, in Georgia, under Georgia law for certain uh, types of actions. Number one, motor vehicle accidents arising from the use of county vehicles. Okay, that is a statutory waiver. Um, also, second, whistleblower claims by county employees. And third, what we call condemnation and inverse condemnation claims. And that's basically the taking of private property for a public use, which may mean you, you, you used the condemnation procedures that are in the statute, or maybe you took the property by damaging it and you didn't go through the, the uh, condemnation procedures. And then that's what's called inverse condemnation. So you, you specifically said motor vehicle accidents arising from the use of county vehicles. Was it intentional as opposed to state vehicles or whatever? Yes. Um, the, the, there is a specific carve out for county vehicles in the statute. And I don't know whether it has to do with the lobby or the, you know, who was who was asking for it or, or, or what they wrote in. But it is specific to county vehicles. Um, now, does all this apply a, to contracts? Well, that's a good question. Um, it does not apply to contracts claims. Contract claims are, are, are not subject to claims of sovereign immunity. And it makes sense if you think about it, because by voluntarily entering into a contract, the state has agreed to be bound by that contract. And so, uh, again, that concept of sovereign immunity wouldn't apply there because you've done something voluntarily as the state to subject yourselves to contract claims. So we've, we've gotten through this whole process when when you file this lawsuit either against the county or the individuals in their official capacity is how does what are the mechanics for how you raise that team if sure. you're defending it 
Sure. So in most cases, um, particularly where sovereign immunity is is going to be a defense where they've sued the state or you know, tried to go around suing the state by suing someone, but they're suing them in, in as a substitute for suing the state itself. Um, it's probably going to be brought by motion to uh, a motion to dismiss. Um, it's going to be brought right at the outset of the case. When I was practicing in this area, uh, I went to a private law firm and I said on the very first case we had, I said, look, guys, I'm going to develop what I'm going to call the nuclear brief. <laughs> it is the brief that sets out the history of sovereign immunity in the state of Georgia, starting at the English common law and coming all the way to the present. And the reason I'm going to do that is there are a lot of judges out there who aren't necessarily familiar with the ins and outs and intricacies of sovereign versus official immunity and why it's part of the Georgia law in the, in the first place. And so we developed this like 75 page brief that went back and, and recounted the history of sovereign immunity. And ultimately it was asking to dismiss the case because there was only a suit against the state. And so um, that's where you're going to normally see it as in a, a motion to dismiss. So, Tane, can you give me the the idiot's version of the difference between sovereign immunity and official immunity, the, the sure. short version? I know you got a lot of law in here and, and sites, but can you give me sort of the – if I was take, trying to take a three-by-five five, three card note out of this podcast, sure. what, what would be the difference between those two? So sovereign immunity applies when the state itself is being sued or when someone is being sued um, for, for something that they did in their official capacity and um, essentially are being sued as a substitute to suing the state. In other words, we're suing an individual, the commissioner of the Department of Transportation, because we know we can't sue the DOT because there's going to be sovereign immunity. And so th- so it applies there. So think of it this way. And I'll, I'll give you a great example. Um, in the in the case of official immunity, which applies to individuals only, sovereign immunity applies to the state, official immunity applies to individuals. In order to have a suit against an individual, there are certain things that you have to show, and I'll, I'll talk about those in a second. I had a case one time where we were arguing straight sovereign immunity. They had sued a school district. They hadn't sued any individuals. It was either sovereign immunity or it was nothing. And so... Um, the partner from the very expensive law firm got up to defend our, I got up and talked about sovereign immunity, and he got up and gave all the reasons that under official immunity, this suit would be able to go go forward. And I said, when I rebutted, but judge, they haven't sued any individuals, so official immunity doesn't apply. And I sat down <laughs> and the judge said, you're right, case dismissed. So Official immunity only applies when the defendant is an individual uh, who who works for the state or who is working in an official capacity, and um, they have an immunity for things that they have done, and and it's it's a little tricky, but things that they have done either in direct violation of a uh, what we call what they call ministerial duty okay if an individual is sued and they violated a ministerial duty and a ministerial duty is simply something that is specifically set out for them to do or not do in other words 
whenever this particular, I, I'll relate it to DOT because um, that's what I'm intimately familiar with. But back when I used to represent DOT, there were certain standards for how you um, put up traffic safety devices. So in other words, there was a manual that told you how to put up guardrails and when to put up guardrails and where to put up guardrails. Those were essentially ministerial duties. If you've got a ravine that's within 10 feet of the edge of a roadway, a guardrail is required because otherwise people will fall off the, into the ravine. So uh, the manual told you to do that. So if you violated one of those ministerial duties, you could be sued individually and the the immunity would not apply because there was a, a ministerial duty violated. And think about that. That makes sense. It means you can't just go out and willy nilly uh, do things that you know you're not supposed to do and then say, well, I have official immunity. Uh, you know, I, I can't be sued. Um, the law doesn't allow you to do that. And so that's the case when essentially a, an individual can be sued and can be sued um, and, and not be able to assert the immunity. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And we're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. All right, so when you were at the AG's office, you didn't just go around filing motions to dismiss. That wouldn't be a full-time job. So so there must be some mechanism under which people can bring these actions. Talk a little bit about the State Tort Claims Act. Yeah, absolutely. So, so again, I, as I said, you – you can sue the state in certain circumstances where the state is consented to be sued. And the General Assembly, uh, I'll just tell you, and, and this is a good caveat to everything I say today, the law in Georgia on when you can and cannot sue the state has gone round and round and back and forth like a pendulum. In other words, there have been periods of time in Georgia where essentially there was absolute sovereign immunity. In other words, you couldn't sue the state at all for any reason under any circumstance. There have been other carve-out times where the Supreme Court said, well, the state has purchased insurance, and therefore, because the state purchased insurance, that was a tacit waiver of sovereign immunity. Let me just tell you, that's no longer the law in Georgia. Um, finally, what happened was because the law had become so messy in this area back in 1991, when I was still doing a lot of state law litigation, um, the state passed what's called the Georgia State Tort Claims Act. It's in OCGA Section 50-21-21 and all the way up to 50-21-37. In that 
uh, and this was this was done by actually a constitutional amendment and then a subsequent set of statutes. We we waived constitutionally the sovereign immunity of the state in these limited circumstances and then put in a tort claims act allowing uh, for certain suits in tort claims against state officials and against state entities. And so, you know, it, it wouldn't behoove us probably to go into all the ins and outs of when and how you can sue, but just understand. If you get a tort suit against an individual or an entity of the state, you need to go to this section of the code, check all of these statutes. The other interesting point about this is while the state waived its sovereign immunity in these cases, it limited its liability. It, it's like a it's like an insurance policy where the state says, look, you can sue us, but you can only get one million dollars per loss or injury and three million dollars per incident. In other words, if 10 people get hurt, uh, those are 10 injuries, but the aggregate amount that they can recover is only three million dollars total. So the state has limited its liability, just like your insurance carrier limits its liability by selling you a policy for a certain amount. Um, there are other limitations too, and they are they are um, uh, jurisdictional. Uh, the biggest one of those is that if you want to sue the state, you have to give the state notice within one year of the accident or incident that you're going to sue about. And again, we're just talking about torts here, uh, but you have to give notice within one year. Uh, that you're going to sue. Now you still have the sta the applicable statute of limitations, but if you don't give the notice within one year, you can't sue because you have missed a jurisdictional requirement of suit. The reason for that is that the state needs to be able to to investigate claims in a timely fashion to you know take a look at those claims and see if it's something that ought to be resolved without the person even having to file a lawsuit. So um, that was kind of the idea. All right, so. When you have that, when you have that um, uh, immunities, and, and you are allowed to sort of have that limited waiver, I guess, of some of the sovereign immunity provisions, would that apply in all courts? Um, it applies in state courts because it's a state courts tort claims act. Now, if you've got, if you've got, um, so it would it would apply both in uh, in the superior courts of Georgia and the state courts of Georgia. And I don't know about your jurisdiction, but in my jurisdiction, most of the tort suits get filed in state court as opposed to superior court. So they're applying this doctrine all the time over there. Um, and what if it makes it to federal court? If it makes it to federal court and they have st uh, pendant state law claims, then you can have those tort claims and still assert those immunities in federal court. You also have the opportunity in federal court to, to um, fly under the doctrine of qualified immunity, which is a federal law claim. So if you have federal suits brought um, for certain kinds of injuries or damages or whatever, um, you can also potentially assert what's called qualified immunity. And like I said, I'm I'm kind of making you aware that qualified immunity is out there, but because we're talking to state law, state court judges, um, just understand if somebody in your state court suit says qualified immunity, they're looking at law that doesn't really apply. So, I will have to say though, there are a couple of cases where our appellate courts accidentally call official immunity qualified immunity. Don't be confused by that. It's it's official. It's official immunity. So, Tane, you talked earlier about ministerial duties and basically yeah. following the policy or following the procedure book and, and doing that negligently or maliciously. Sure. Do you have some examples? And, and, and you know, um, I know, Tane, that reading law during a podcast is not awesome. 
It, it so is you don't, not. So you don't necessarily have to read the, the case, <laughs> but explain to folks. You, you gave the example of the guardrail next to a ravine or whatever. Right. What are some other examples that maybe are not, you know, that obvious? Sure. So, so let me back up and just and just talk about. We're moving into the realm of official immunity here. Okay. So, so remember, official immunity is you've got an individual who's sued. They're sued in their official capacity. In other words, they're suing you as the sheriff of, uh, you know, Sparta County, <laughs> whatever. Uh, and um, they can assert official immunity in in certain circumstances, and it's waived in certain circumstances. So. Uh, official immunity applies when the person was performing an official function without malice, even if the act was performed negligently. So this is a big this is a big differentiation here. Y- you can do official acts negligently as long as they were done without malice. Okay, and this is really confusing. So so stay with me here. Uh, if I just screw something up in my official capacity. I do something that I'm not supposed to do and it results in injury, but it's not something that violates one of these, you know, set hard and fast rules that, you know, okay, if A, always do B. If it's not that clear, then I get to assert official immunity. So as long as I do it without malice. And so that's the second sort of the secondary analysis. Well, okay, you screwed this up. It wasn't hard and fast rule, but did you do it just, you know, just out of malice? So for example, if you're a jailer and you have somebody in your, in your county jail, um, and you accidentally, something happens to them and they get injured, you, 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 um, you know, there's a there's a fire that you're fighting over in one part of the jail. And while you're doing that, this person's having a heart attack. And so, uh, you know, they pass away and you, you know, that person dies. You're not going to be held liable for that because you, you know, you you were while while there might be an argument that you're being negligent, you weren't doing it out of malice. You didn't just leave that person over there on purpose and let them expire because you didn't like them. Likewise, things that you do out of malice, like punch somebody in the nose. <laughs> you know, you might have done that as a jailer at the jail and you might have been angry about something, but you don't get to claim immunity because you punched somebody in the nose. That's a volitional act done with malice. And so therefore, now, if you punch them in the nose because you were in the in, you know, in your duty, you were trying to subdue them because they had a knife. That's a whole different thing. And you can potentially claim uh, official immunity for that. So it's a little confusing, but um, but but it's um, is the opposite- just remember. Sorry, is the opposite of ministerial function discretionary function? Yeah, yeah. So anytime that you're performing, I did know something. You did. You nailed it. So yeah, anytime that you're doing something that has any level of discretion associated with it, it's probably not going to be classified as ministerial. The two are essentially opposites of each other. So, so a lot of times people will argue, well, this was a ministerial function because here's a rule about it. Well, yeah, but the rule leaves this person the discretion to do A or B in that situation. And if they did A or B, you can't sue them because they didn't do B or A. Um, so they can't be held liable in that circumstance. So, um, there are uh, there's there's a couple of cases out there that are cited in in, in the um, materials, and you may want to read through some of that to uh, to get a flavor for some of the circumstances where some of these things pop up. But uh, I won't go into uh, to a lot of detail about that. Um, as I, I said, can I do that Lincoln County case only because I think yeah, it, sure. I think it helps explain some of this in Absolutely. Lincoln County v. Edmund. 
the county and the county road superintendent get sued for negligence because a tree fell across the road and there was an accident prior to the removal crew showing up. Now, the fallen tree had been reported early in the morning, but before the workday began. And the superintendent did not go directly to the site as soon as he learned that the road was blocked or take any steps to probably mark it off or whatever. And so the county was dismissed based upon sovereign immunity. Tane's drawn that distinction because the accident only involved privately owned vehicles. There's no waiver because you bought car insurance because there were no county cars involved in the wreck. But the road superintendent asserted that official immunity, that individual sort of official immunity, claiming that he was performing a discretionary function but that claim was denied, and the right. the court ruled that once the road superintendent knew that the downed tree created a road hazard, he had a ministerial duty to remove it. It's right. up to the jury to decide whether he did that negligently or not. So That's he faced exactly unlimited right. exposure. Of course, the case settled, as sometimes they do. But he faced... He didn't have any caps. He didn't have any liability caps. All that other stuff went away when he no longer had that qualified immunity. Sorry, yeah, sorry, and, sorry. And, I just, I just did it. Official immunity. There you go. And and think about it this way. So so, had this accident happened, I'm sorry. Had, had the tree fallen, and he got notice of it. And he headed there immediately upon he's, oh my gosh, the road is blocked. I've got to get out there with my chainsaw that's in the back of my truck and move this tree immediately. And he he calls some other people and he gets in his truck and he drives out there. But in between the time that he knew about it and headed over there and the time he gets there, let's say the accident happened in that interval. Not that he just didn't go out there immediately, but he literally ran out to his truck and took off out there. He's probably going to get it. He's probably going to get immunity in that case because he essentially did everything that one would have thought was prudent for him to do in order to, to, to head out there. And, and that's probably going to entitle him to official immunity. But because he hesitated and waited when he knew there were exigent circumstances he knew that the policy was the tree had to be removed from the road had to be removed you know as soon as possible because it's such a significant emergency that's why he lost his official immunity in that circumstance because he failed to act when he knew there was a ministerial duty to act all right so the rest of the cases are in there but at least that helps me understand yeah. that we weren't going to talk too much about the federal claims right yeah. So uh, again, if somebody starts using the fr the phrase "qualified immunity," you mean like I just um, did? Yeah, you, like yeah, like Wade did. You know that they're actually talking about federal case law, and and the federal case law is a little bit different and a little bit interesting in that you know again it talks about uh, discretionary acts and things like that. But but it is different from state law. So just um, just be aware it's out there, and and you can take a look at those cases if you want to. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I said it, but I can't tell you how well, many okay. lawyers do exactly that. And every time we and I get all confused about is qualified immunity is a third thing from official immunity. And where is that statute? And I, anyway, so long so story let's short. move on. Well, let's move on to different kinds of claims that we haven't talked about yet, because, you know, in addition to especially in Superior Court, what we do, uh, we, we don't just have tort claims. We also have all kinds of other things, mostly equitable remedies claims. So so claims for injunctions and mandamus and declaratory relief. And uh, so so let's talk about that. So um, 
Well, I can do some of this injunction stuff. So when the lawsuit seeks an injunction, usually or frequently preceded by some sort of temporary restraining order, that asks the court to ask the county, let's say, for example, from Mm -hmm. undertaking an action, stopping something. For example, if there's a signed ordinance regulating billboards and that runs afoul of the First Amendment and an outdoor advertising company, for example, my buddy Pudge Roberts, shout out. They could uh, obtain an injunction to prevent enforcement of that ordinance. Now, Tane, does do the immunities apply to injunctions? Well, let me get to that, Wade, because there's an interesting new set of cases that talks about that. So, so next, let's talk about mandamus. Okay. Mandamus is another equitable remedy that we have. And Wade, what's what's all these Latin phrases always uh, get me confused? But what's a mandamus action essentially? Basically, forcing a county official to do his or her job. I mean, right. it's a request that that says a county official has a has an obligation to do this, and they are not doing it. I want right. you or a to state official. Let's not yeah. confuse it. And, and, and let me let me say something. I should have said this at the beginning. When you're analyzing these claims, um, it really doesn't matter whether you're talking about the state or a subdivision of the state, which is a county, or a school district. In most circumstances, those are all considered the state, and and that's a constitutional thing. There, those are considered entities of the state. Something I should have differentiated at the beginning, though, is cities. You, you did say there was a difference. You just didn't say what it was. Yeah. So municipalities are always treated differently. And if you think about that, that actually makes sense. A municipality doesn't have to be created. In other words, we have to have subdivisions of the state, and that's what counties are. We have to have school districts because the Constitution says we're going we're gonna to give uh, you know, a free education uh, to the public. So we have to have those. Municipalities are created because a group of citizens gets together and says, we want to be self-governed. We want to be self-governed in the city of, let's say, East Cobb, one new one that's coming up right now. Uh, we want to be governed. Um, so we're going to assume some of the liabilities that that would be caused by assuming that. Now, so cities and municipalities under statutory law have different limits of liability. Uh, They have different defenses to some of their liabilities. And while we're not gonna try to get too deep in the weeds of that, just understand that you are talking about two different types of liabilities and immunities if you're talking about the state and the state entities and state officials versus city and uh, and municipal officials, okay? All so, right. So anyway, that was a long way of saying cities are different than state. And then now declaratory <laughs> judgments. Now, that's different than mandamus. That is, we've got a set of circumstances, and we need a judicial ruling as to sort of where we stand, you know, what, what, our, what our rights and responsibilities are, correct? That's exactly right. And so, yeah, essentially you're, you're declaring what the law is and uh, as between these parties who are before you. And I'm, I'm going to skip over part of that's in the outline here, prosecutorial immunity, and we'll come back to that. But so, so this, again, talking about sovereign immunity, sovereign immunity for many, many years essentially wasn't generally applied in those actions we just talked about, uh, mandamus, injunction, and declaratory judgment actions. 
But now, as my law professor was fond of saying, let's change the law. <laughs> um, and so there were some cases or there have been some cases uh, that basically started with a case in 2017, a case called Lathrop versus Deal at 301 Georgia 408. It ta- it's worth it's worth looking at in that case. It's a fairly long opinion, goes back through uh, many of the issues that we've just talked about, explaining what these different liabilities are, what these different immunities are, um, why they were done in the time periods that they were done and that sort of thing as the law changed and evolved. And then in Lathrop, um, the Supreme Court of Georgia did some clarification and modification of law and immunity. In that case, uh, the facts were essentially that Governor Deal was sued by several physicians over statutes that regulated abortion. So it's a big case. It got a lot of publicity at the time. In analyzing the law in that case, the Supreme Court determined that immunities applied, and the Supreme Court took that opportunity to clarify the law on both sovereign and official immunity. The the main holding of that case was that the doctrine of sovereign immunity prohibits the state from being sued in any suit unless it has been it has consented to it. So. The law of sovereign immunity, according to the Lathrop versus Deal case, is that it applies to suits for injunctive relief, for declaratory judgment actions, and also to the traditional tort actions that we had applied it to before that. So that case really pointed out, and I mean, the court said, look, we should have been doing this all along, or it should have been being applied in this way all along, because essentially the doctrine is the state can't be sued unless it consents, not the state can't be sued in tort unless it consents. So this case clarified that. So now, in, in this Mixon go, case, right. which is more recent, yeah, real, actually real recent, mm-hmm. um, the Supreme Court looks like they're still trying to sort of define exactly where and when it, when it does and doesn't apply. Sure. It, this was an inverse condemnation case. In other words, this is where somebody is claiming due to your actions, you have practically taken my land or made it unusable or greatly reduced the value without just compensation. That's right. And in that, the, did the doctrine apply thing? No, it didn't because the Supreme court said, um, if you look at constitutional law, there is this, um, takings clause of the constitution that prohibits, um, a state from taking private property uh, without just compensation. And so an inverse condemnation action just says, like you said, you've damaged my property. You've either made it unusable or you've made it less valuable or you've harmed it in some way. We, we used to get these claims a lot of times with DOT. When they'd build a highway, they'd say, you diverted water across my property. Now my property's flooding and I can't use the property or it's hurt the property. So um, so the, this, the court said, well, okay, the state asserted sovereign immunity here, but immunity doesn't really apply because we actually have a constitutional provision that says you can't do this. So in, other, so in that case, uh, immunity can't apply. And there, there, there have been some more cases since Lathrop, and there will probably be some more cases clarifying what carve-outs do exist. But just, to, just remember, the blanket rule is the state can't be sued unless it consents to being sued, and then the party, the burden becomes on the party who is asserting the claim to show how immunity's been waived. And the whole issue with the purchase of liability insurance is sort of a implied or express waiver up until the the points of that insurance. Correct. I mean, that, it's not always right. true. There's there's details, but that's sort of the concept. Correct. That's exactly right. So, well. 
I know that this has been really just a very quick overview of a very complex um, subject matter. But what I encourage anybody to do is if you have one of these cases, the main thing we wanted to point out to you today is that there are fact there to point out to you the fact that these immunities do exist um, so that someone comes and asserts one of them. It's not an outrageous claim. Of, what do you mean the state can't be sued? Of course they can be sued. Well, no, in many circumstances they can't. Um, we wanted you to be familiar with the fact that there's a difference between sovereign immunity when the state is sued and official immunity when individuals are sued. And we wanted to let you know that there are, in torts cases at least, some waivers of immunity um, that have caps and restrictions and some other jurisdictional things that have to be done for parties. And so um, that's that's basically about as much as we could do in a, in a situation like this without getting too far in the weeds. But now it, you might want to get Kevin Morris to help you. <laughs> yeah. Shout out again Call to it. Kevin Morris. <laughs> if you ever have one of these claims, because he wrote this outline and um, really helped giving us a great starting point. And again, we didn't we didn't deal with prosecutorial immunity. We didn't deal with cities and states and I mean, cities and municipalities and all the special rules only because we didn't want you to quit listening to the podcast. <laughs> because you don't have those kind of cases in front of you. But we wanted to give you a flavor of what immunities is all about, where you can go and tain. Everybody can download this this outline and give them a with all the citations to the statutes and the cases, etc. And where could they find that tain? That's it. Goodjudgepod.com. And if you have any questions for Wayne and me, or if you can't get in touch with Kevin and you want to ask a question that we can send along to him, uh, shoot us an email at uh, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. That's right. Folks, I'm Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell. And remember, vitamin C boosts your immunities. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions, and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. And we really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.